0: You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Hear the scripture tonight out of Psalm 54. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer and give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves, Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. All right. My name is Aaron Trent, and my wife Grace and I are members here at Free City, and we also have the privilege of currently serving as the directors of the Navigators Campus Ministry at KU. And it is um, my privilege to open the scriptures with you this evening. Well, how do you respond to moments of distress? Moments of betrayal. And what might your response, what might my response, verbalized or internalized or visibly displayed, reveal about your heart, about my heart, and how we functionally view and operate within the world? Again, moments of distress, Moments of of danger, of disillusionment that might flow from or be drawn out of betrayal, bitterness. A response to this is not the way things were supposed to be. Our culture does form and disciple us in how we are to respond or maybe at least could respond to moments like this. Think about, um, on one end, something like Harvey Dent in The Dark Knight. Betrayed by those who had been handpicked to protect him, having lost his one true love, he spirals into bitterness, disillusionment, and finally into his own destructive rage. On the other hand, maybe uh, you have what we saw in the Black Panther. T'Challa's father, T'Chaka, has decided to deal with the betrayal of his brother. Sorry, spoilers, but I, I think you've got years, so I'm, I'm not sorry. But uh, his, his brother's betrayal leads to covering it up just moving on and trying to hide what has happened. And over the course of that movie, we see that it wasn't covered up. It was only festering. That bitterness was growing and resulted in the same destructive realities that come from how we respond on our own to betrayal to the bitterness, the danger, the disillusionment that, that grows out of that. Or think with me about the great cultural philosopher Taylor Swift. In her song, Look What You Made Me Do. Again, just to think, and, and, and to, the reason I want to do this is to try to, to realize like the, these are the songs and the things we watch that form our own Thoughts and ways of responding to these issues that we ourselves experience. Here's what she says. I don't like your kingdom keys. They once belonged to me. You asked me for a place to sleep, locked me out, and threw a feast. What? Right? (laughs) The world moves on another day, another drama. Drama. But not for me, not for me. All I think about is karma. And then the world moves on, but one thing's for sure, sure. Maybe I got mine, but you'll all get yours. But I got smarter, I got harder in the nick of time. Honey, I rose up from the dead. I do it all the time. Self-proclaimed resurrection, okay? (laughs) I've got a list of names and yours is in red underlined. I check it once, then I check it twice. Oh, ooh, look what you made me do. Okay. But again, this, this sense of what I hear in that, and you're like, don't, don't overanalyze Taylor Swift. All right. Like, my sermon is not rooted and grounded in this text, but in Psalm 54. But, but just again to think about the way that she is thinking about the betrayal, it seems that she experienced is I got smarter. I got harder just in time on my own. Under my own strength, I raised myself up. I created a new me in order to deal with you. And then the bridge later on, she says, I don't trust nobody, and nobody trusts me. I'll be the actress starring in your bad dreams. Sobering, is it not? To think about the pictures that betrayal paints in the world around us, but even more sobering to stop and think about in our own lives what betrayal has cultivated and what it has produced. When we've faced danger, again, distress, disillusionment, a sense of these. this is not how things should be, How have you responded? Maybe even more so in this moment, how are you responding? And friends, what does that pulling back, that say about what you believe to be true about God and about the way things work in the world? So much of what we see and what, what was just drawn from those examples aligns more so with that functional godlessness of the fool that we looked at last week in Psalm 53. Yeah, God might exist, but I don't see him. Certainly, he's not involved here in the midst of the uncertainty and the questions and the difficulties I am facing. I'm left to myself. Whether that's to cover it up and try to move on, Or that's to enrage, destroy whatever might be around me. But in contrast, Psalm 54 paints a different picture. A picture of one who knows and trusts God. And so that person prays to him in the midst of danger, distress, and disillusionment. And then that that person perceives God to be his trustworthy sustainer and faithful protector. And then that person praises God freely and gratefully among the people of God for God's sure, certain deliverance from all his enemies. That's the alternative. That's the beautiful picture that is painted for us, for those who would turn from self-salvation... Independence and instead look to God. Friends, I don't know where you are at in terms of what's going on in your life this evening. And I also do not even know if if you know Jesus and, and if and if you come today trusting and treasuring him, or maybe you come, maybe you're alongside a friend or a family member, and you're asking these types of questions. What do I do in the moment of this distress? Together we want to look at Jesus and to look at what God has for us here in Psalm 54 in these moments together. Let's pray and ask Him for His help. Father, we acknowledge that we come with many questions, with many heart murmurings. Would you silence Those, would you still us and would you lift our eyes to see you, to behold you, to know you by faith as our trustworthy sustainer, our just and dependable helper? And Lord, would you turn our hearts to praise you with hopeful expectation, even as we may sit in this moment in deep distress, teetering, tempted toward disillusionment. Lord, help us. Amen. As we begin to look at Psalm 54, a few things to help give us or to remind us of the framework of engaging with the psalms. The psalms, though varied, function as a unit. As such, whenever we read a psalm, whether it's 54 or 4 or 94 or 144 or anything in between, we must read within the boundaries of the first two introductory psalms and then the final five concluding psalms. Picture a a typical grade school art project of that drawing of the train train tracks that converge in the distance. Two rails begin in the foreground. Think of those as the first two psalms that provide the, the focus and the framework of all that we are to read in the 150 psalms. But in the middle third of the page, the tracks appear to converge. Those are the final five psalms, songs of praise, upon which we are all headed in every psalm we read. The first psalm addresses the theme of a flourishing life that knows and loves God's law. The second psalm addresses the theme of God's eternal Savior King, the promised seed of the woman given in Genesis 3, who is appointed to bring justice and peace in the kingdom of God. To reject him is to face his certain justice. To humbly acknowledge him and his rule is to come under his good reign. Every psalm following wrestles with these primary themes within the multitude of the circumstances of life, challenging and encouraging people to relate honestly and rightly with the God of the Scriptures. As we find ourselves in Psalm 54, particularly in this area, we also have to remember, very briefly, but to remember where we have been the past few Sundays. Psalm 52 tells us that God's faithful love is constant. He judges the proud, uprooting them, because he would not, because those proud people will not make God their refuge, but instead they trust in themselves. In contrast... God establishes those who trust in him, who hope in God's good name. Then we picked up last Sunday in Psalm 53. The fool lives a functionally godless life. The fool does not see. The fool does not care. He does not call upon God. Instead, he destroys God's people. Yet, the fool will be put to shame terrified scattered and this psalm closes with a longing for god's salvation and restoration of israel and i think that as we see in psalm 54 it picks up then with this personal cry for salvation and deliverance so we've thought about the big picture just giving us rails and direction to what we're what we're looking at here and then a little bit of context of where we've been the past few sundays The last thing before we actually look at these verses is that in this case we actually get a hint and this was true in Psalm 52 as well of what was happening when this psalm was first penned and expressed. Here is the context of 1 Samuel 23 in brief. Verses 1 to 14 David with 600 of his men Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't the city then just roll out the red carpet, welcome, whatever you need, whatever you ask for, we'll provide it. But they don't do that. Instead, God guides David to depart from the city because Saul is coming and the people who were just delivered by David opportunistically will, if David stays, turn him over to Saul. And so, so God says leave. David does. So if you can put yourself in the shoes of someone who, maybe this is true of you, or you've experienced this, or you've done this to someone, that someone has helped you, or you have helped that person, and you are expecting gratitude, and you don't get it. How are you doing in that moment of expectation that is unmet? That's heightened then by the fact that had you stayed, you would probably be dead. Okay? And then, verses 15 to 18, in stark contrast from the treatment of those in the city, Jonathan, Saul's own son, the man murderously after David, Saul, or sorry, sorry, Jonathan strengthens, says David's hand in God, and says to him, Jonathan says to him, do not fear. Saul will not find you. You shall be king over Israel. So in the, in the midst of the potential of betrayal, God strengthens him through the words of Saul's own son, reminding him of his anointing and his calling as the king. Though a refugee on the run from Saul, Jonathan understands what it means for David to be God's anointed. He will be king. And then verses 19 to 29, Ziph is the setting of this psalm. Ziph is is a part of the tribe of Judah, David's own people, his tribe. Surely, if. Wrong, right? No, they they actually initiate toward Saul and say, Is not David hiding among us? Our part will be to surrender him to you. They are, again, opportunists that look around and see, well, it seems that Saul is in charge. He is intent on killing David, and uh, David is on the run. We're going to play our cards with the one who seems to be ruling things and running things, not the one who's fleeing. Saul actually responds with strangely pious self-interest, and he says, may you be blessed of the Lord. The betrayal appears to settle the issue. Saul, who has been after David, seems to have him. He closes in on David until, at the last minute, a messenger comes to Saul and says, another Philistine raiding party is in the area. You must come. And so they depart, and David is delivered again. High drama in the sense that David's life has hung in the balance time and time again. It seems that Saul has finally won the day. And yet again, David is delivered. That is the context for which David, experiencing his own betrayal, faced with danger and distress and disillusionment, chooses a path of response. The response we see in Psalm 54. He responds really in three ways. He prays, he perceives, and then lastly, he praises. Verses 1 and 2, David writes, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. David, in, in the midst of great danger, turns to God to deliver him. He asks for salvation and vindication, a desire to be saved and justified in the presence of those who have betrayed him. He has done no wrong, and he roots his request in the name and power of God, the sum of his character, the full representation of his glory. One commentator mentions this about David's prayer. David has no other plea to depend upon than God's name. No other power to depend upon than God's strength. And these, he makes his refuge and confidence. Friend, as as you think about maybe even the distress, the danger, the disillusionment you are experiencing today, what is it that you are even now leaning into? What are you choosing to depend upon? And if You find yourself thinking, I'm I'm not quite sure. What are the words that you are speaking? Is it the, again, the subtle murmur of your own heart to problem solve your way out of this yet again? Or like David, have you turned and spoken to the one who knows? To the one who is steadfast and certain, who's Name is even bound up in his work in your life. Verse 3 continues. David addresses the circumstance behind his prayer. He writes, For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. This again draws on what we just looked at last week in Psalm 53 of those who have, knowing God, turned from him and rejected him. David is speaking of those in Ziph, of the tribe of Judah, and he refers to them as strangers, violent, ruthless men. They're acting as people who do not know God, who are seeking to destroy God's anointed. Their betrayal stands in direct contrast with the unchanging trustworthiness of God that David leans into that he is depending upon in, chapter, in verse 1. His description escalates, right, to that last phrase in verse 3. It's not only their character, the fact that they've turned on one of their own people, but it is they, that they do not set God before themselves. They functionally ignore the authority and the guidance of God. Acting unfaithfully, they set themselves against God and echo what it is David speaks of in Psalm 2, rejecting God and his anointed. They do not understand that in fighting against God's people, those set apart by God, they are in fact fighting against him. And then David Pins selah. To pause. To consider. To meditate. And I wonder, after David has just voiced that prayer, "O oh God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. I wonder what he thought about. I wonder what it is that God brought to mind. Did he think back? To Psalm 1, blessed are those who do not walk in the way of the wicked, but instead who turn and delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his word. They are like trees, right? Rooted and grounded, flourishing as they trust in him. Or did he think of Psalm 25, 1-3, to which he wrote, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Do you hear there again that, that same rhythm of turning to God in the midst of betrayal and danger and saying, God, help me. And I know this to be true that those who wait on you will not be put to shame. So again, friend, where are you in distress? And right there, in that place, how are you relating with God? Stop and consider that. David prays. And then David perceives. He starts in verse 4 with this, this word, behold. And I think that what has happened here is that in David's prayer for salvation, deliverance, and vindication, that God has answered in that moment with a clear-eyed, sober-minded reminder of who God is. And he says again, Behold, look, see, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. God, in, in the fullness of his character, by his sure and steadfast name, he, he is his helper. He is the sustainer and the upholder of his life. All right, again, echoes of Psalm 2. The one who is blessed is the one who takes refuge in God and in his anointed. David sees God with eyes of faith in the midst of his distress. Friend, as you turn, as you plead with God, would you wait and then would you look? Look to God. But David keeps going and he starts to engage to 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 move into a place that is uncomfortable and difficult but at the same time beautiful for us he says this of god he will return the evil or he will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness put an end to them as i looked at this Sentence this verse. I, I wondered what has this request to to put an end to them have to do with God's faithfulness To what is is God being faithful were he to do this to, to bring this this request this prayer to pass He would be faithful to his word to his very character David's prayer here is not one of malice but it is one of faith. It's not one of of bitter vindictiveness, but it is one that says, God, I know who you are as one who is trustworthy and that what you have spoken you will bring to pass. David fixes his eyes on the unchanging word of God and desires that God be faithful to what he has said. Listen to John Calvin as he reflected on this verse nothing can support us in the hour of temptation when the divine deliverance may be long delayed but a firm persuasion that god is true and that he cannot deceive us by his divine promises his confidence of obtaining his request speaking of david was grounded upon the circumstance that god could no more deny his word than deny himself God had set apart David as his anointed king to lead his people. Rooted and grounded in all that was to come was this same promise that he had given years before to Abraham. That he would be blessed and would be made into a great and mighty nation and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And woven in there is this phrase that we oftentimes move beyond, because similarly we're not quite sure what to do with it. And it's this promise, that him who dishonors you, I will curse. And David leans into what he knows to be true of God, and he says, God, I am depending upon you to be who you have always said you are. It is a a prayer of faith and even then in his humility David relinquishes any attempt that he will make to win his own vindication it will not come from his hands but from God's so David prays God save me, vindicate me and God's first Inkl- his, his, the inkling of his answer is to say, David, I'm going to help you see me again. I want you to see me and remember of who I am as your helper, your sustainer, and as the faithful God who always fulfills what he has promised. And David, in seeing that, looks ahead to praise. Verse 6 he says with a free will offering I will sacrifice to you I will give thanks to your name O Lord for it is good The psalm ends in forward-looking praise the anticipation of concrete tangible evidence of God's goodness through his deliverance With fresh sight of God his helper God his trustworthy judge David looks ahead to when he will praise God gladly and gratefully among God's people. Though this is an individual prayer that David prays, he anticipates that this specific personal prayer will result in glory and honor being given to God, not only by him, but by all who hear of his deliverance. You see, this this free will offering would be a corporate meal, one to gather to honor God and to recount God's faithfulness. It would be even to draw on a few weeks back further what God spoke in Psalm 50:15, "Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me." David anticipates his deliverance and that he will be able to then gather and to offer to God sacrifices of praise that will not only be individual, but will result in corporate worship. May I submit to you that even in the moment of your distress, as you turn to him, as you pray, and even as God begins to remind and refresh with renewed faith who he is, that it may be that he is working and preparing something that is not only going to result in your praise and honor being given to God, but to draw others in. Maybe that's in the context of a city group. As you invite others in to say, this is what's going on, would you pray for me and with me? And that together you might track with and then rejoice in how God works Maybe it's even totally, corporately, an opportunity, even coming in a few weeks, to hear and to testify of God's grace and His deliverance as we baptize. And as individuals testify and bear witness to God's saving work. But then David doesn't simply end there. But he goes on in verse 7. He has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This, this fresh perception of God's saving character that's given in response to his prayer for righteous deliverance broadens. It doesn't simply end in this one point of deliverance, but it renews and strengthens David's confidence in God's deliverance in every instance. He has delivered And God will deliver again. God has upheld justice. And he will do so again. And it ends in a place of safety. Victory. Rest and honor. A place of exaltation. As David looks in triumph on his enemies. David will say elsewhere in a few Psalms to come. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. He will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Earlier he spoke in Psalm 23, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In this we see David trace His response to betrayal and the allure of how he might choose to respond to this danger and distress and disillusionment. And he turns and he prays to God. He perceives God's character and then he looks ahead anticipating when he will praise God for his deliverance. And I want to then... Briefly, to look up, to take this psalm as we've been looking at it in this context of 1 Samuel 23 and to lift it, as it were, as a lens to look at Jesus. Consider for a moment uh, our trash trucks. Okay? So on, on Fridays, uh, our, tr- our trash truck comes through our, our court and picks up our trash. It's a big day in the Trent household. Um, Our four-year-old and our two-year-old anticipate and have their ears tuned to the sound of the trash truck. The best day is when the trash truck comes, the yard waste truck comes, and the recycling truck comes. Okay? The tricky part is that usually they come in the morning, and our court is set next to, very close to, another court. And so you can hear the beeping and the dumping and all the exciting sounds that might make you think, it's here, and it's time to run to the window and pull back the court curtain and watch the guys. Oftentimes, there is disappointment because what they have heard is the work of the trash truck on the court neighboring us. And so they run and they look and they they know this is happening right now. The trash truck is dumping, there is work that's happening, but I can't see it. Similarly, one way that we might think of this is that just as all that David has written and spoken in Psalm 54 has been true of his experience, it is a type anticipating that which Jesus will know and pray and perceive and praise in his own life. And so think briefly with me in his passion narrative. If you are at all familiar with Jesus and his story, you will know that he was betrayed, soberingly so, by one who spent years with him. It wasn't simply some of his people, maybe distantly related. It was a friend who shared meals with him, who walked with him, who would have heard and learned of his prayers and his ministry and his love. He's betrayed. But knowing that betrayal, what does he do? He goes to a garden and he prays. He does not run. He does not flee from danger. He actually moves toward it. But he also does not respond with rage and destruction. Similarly, he moves toward it. He prays. He turns to his father. And he says, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But... Not as I will, but as you as you will he he remembers and leans into what he knows to be true of the name of his father, and he trusts in him and what happens then in that right, is that in that betrayal he is taken, and you have this glimpse along the way again of, of trust and hope as he is questioned. And mocked by those in the, the council, he says this, I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He knows that his Father is trustworthy, faithful, and true. And he looks ahead in anticipation of the day in which he will rule and reign over all things. But the, the strange part, then, is how we see and understand the middle of this psalm in Jesus' life, in Jesus' passion. Right? The sticking point is this. How can God be both just and the justifier of the one who hopes in God for deliverance? Because we know from just a few weeks ago in Psalm 51 that David is not perfect. He is not clean. What of him? What of his betrayal? Jesus knows and anticipates that his Father will be completely faithful, which means that even as he prays and he looks to God and anticipates. His own deliverance, that it must come through His death, not in place of it. That Jesus, who is both the anointed Savior King that is spoken of in Psalm 2, He is also the suffering servant who will die in the place of sinners as prophesied in Isaiah 53. I wonder, just as David reflected maybe in that moment of Selah, following his prayer, I wonder what it was that Jesus was reflecting upon. We know that while on the cross he cried out the first phrases of Psalm 22. I wonder if his mind went often to that psalm In those final hours. Knowing his betrayal. Knowing his impending death. He cries out. Oh my God. I cry by day. But you do not answer. By night. But I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. Do you hear the the cry. The plea. the, The prayer to God. He is the one. In whom he trusts. He is the one who can save and deliver. But Psalm 22 goes on and it describes not the picture of immediate deliverance, but of mockery, of threatening death and destruction. He goes on in Psalm 22. I can count all my bones. My enemies encircle. They pierce my hands and feet. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. To hear again the circumstances in which he was in. And yet his trust in his father. And then listen as the psalm concludes building it toward praise. I will tell of your name to my brothers, corporate worship. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Even in Jesus' meditation... He anticipates the, the full scope of Psalm 54. He looks ahead knowing, right, that there will be a time in which he will rise again, in which he will ascend to rule and reign. Friends, as we read Psalm 54 we have the advantage of being on this side of the cross. Where David hoped in the promise of God that was to come, we look back at Jesus' resurrection and ascension and now move forward confident in the trustworthiness and faithfulness of God in every circumstance. We can always point back to remember what Jesus accomplished on the cross that displayed God's full commitment his faithfulness to his word that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who hopes in him so friend where are you tonight where are you in distress where have you experienced betrayal or disillusionment where have you even now been tempted to turn from speaking from praying to God instead to live out of the fool's functional godlessness? In our current political climate, is it your tendency to grab and hold on, to log on to social media one more time, just to throw a few more comments to assure that you will be vindicated or feeling the weight of the perplexity and the fear and the desire for control and all that we see and know in our own hearts and in the lives of those around us do we stop at least for a moment and turn our eyes to God and say oh God help me I think that in these moments we may even be in particular danger of disillusionment. Maybe not so physical danger, but to stop and think, this is not how it was supposed to be. If I am to, to walk faithful to Christ, to, to see my life lived in line with His ways and His character, to know His truth, to abide by what He has spoken, might cost me. I'm not sure it's worth it. Will you stop in those moments and turn to God? Will you pray? And then will you perceive His character anew? And then will you anticipate a day of praise? Paul reminded of this, us of this. He, he called us of the, to this in Romans eight thirty one to 39 which I will read for us For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, may it be so for us. Grant us faith to turn to you, to pray, to perceive, to praise the honor and glory of your name. Amen.